I'm Nick Green, your co-host of But Are You Thriving? And today we're talking to Mark Sisson, the New York Times bestselling author, entrepreneur, athlete, and founder of the popular health blog, Mark's Daily Apple. This is a special episode for me for two reasons. First, when I started doing paleo in 2009, Mark's blog was my go-to resource, and frankly, one of the only ones out there at the time. The second is that in a crazy twist of fate, Mark actually became our first investor at Thrive Market in 2014. I'll never forget the day that he signed a check to invest on the spot at a Starbucks in Malibu almost 10 years ago, at a time when we were being rejected left and right by venture capitalists and pretty much every other investor we talked to. I remember being awed by what Mark had accomplished at the time, and since then, he somehow managed to do even more, expanding his expertise into keto and intermittent fasting, founding and selling a beloved brand, Primal Kitchen, and most recently, launching a new minimal shoe company, which you'll hear about on the show. So without further ado, let's get started. Mark, it's an absolute honor to have you on the podcast. Uh, you've done so much, really more than anybody I know, to bring the primal and paleo lifestyle into the mainstream. And of course, at a personal level, uh, without you, Thrive Market probably wouldn't exist. Uh, so thank you for everything, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Nick. And I'm, I, I also remember that day back in 2014, crystal clear. I mean, if I remember sort of the, the wave of excitement that came over me when you described the mission. Uh, and it was so compelling. That was the, that was the impetus for writing a check on the spot. Well, I remember being really, really nervous going into it and Gennar and I wondering, how is this going to go? How is this going to go? And you kind of put us at ease right away. So it was a turning point for Thrive. And as I said, you know, years earlier, reading and getting exposed to your content was a turning point for my personal health journey, as I know it has been for so many others. So, well, let's dive in. Listeners know the focus of this podcast is on how we can thrive more in our lives. Uh, They also know that I like to start with each guest's personal story, uh, or really how you thrive in your own life. And, you know, we've had different guests on the pod, uh, a lot of stories that kind of start with poor health. So people that are, you know, dealing with food addiction, drug addiction, being really overweight, uh, really unhealthy stuff. And on the surface of it, your story is kind of the opposite. You were a world-class distance runner in the 70s and 80s. You were running over, I think it was 100 miles per week for years on end. Uh, You had top five finishes at the U.S. Marathon Championships, the Ironman Triathlon. You even qualified for the U.S. Olympic trials. And yet, as you tell it, your health really paid the price for that. So you weren't thriving, even though you were excelling, let's say. Can you talk about what was going on there and how that led you to the primal. Yeah. So, um, you know, we go back to when I was uh, early teens, I was interested in health from a very early age. My mother had been reading books on diet and nutrition, mostly uh, by a woman named Adele Davis. And so I started reading the books that she was reading. I was probably 12, 13 years old. So, you know, I I had been very interested in, of all things, anti-aging from the age of 12 or 13. Uh, Kind of a weird, nerdy little kid. Ahead Ahead of your time. Way ahead of my time. And, um, uh, you know, I was scrawny in, in the sense that I was too small to play football or basketball or baseball or hockey, which was a big sport in Maine, where I grew up. I grew up in Minnesota, so yeah, also so hockey, you know, hockey hotbed. Yeah, and I yeah, was yeah. too small to play hockey, <laughs> right, yeah. I can tell you that. Also, I lived about a mile and a half from school, and I found that it was much more convenient for me to run to and from school rather than take the bus. I could literally beat that bus both ways going to and from school. So every day from the ages of like 13, 14, up through uh, when I you know, entered a prep school, I was running, I don't know, 20 miles a week. Just, <laughs> it just basically for basic transportation, you know, it wasn't even <laughs> like I was trying to train for anything. Coincidentally, I was also reading a book in those days, uh, uh, Ken Cooper was a, a doctor who kind of coined the word aerobics and put a value on the amount of aerobic work you did and said, the more aerobic work you can do, the better it is for your heart. And the better your heart is, the stronger your heart is, the longer you live. So that all fell into my my game plan of living a long, healthy, strong, happy life. I'm really curious. This is a bit of a tangent, but you know, I was I was actually a runner myself in high school, uh, not nearly as accomplished as, as you were, but for similar reasons. I was not able to play hockey, football, or any contact sport for my mother. And, you know, I've read a lot about like VO2 max is like a pretty genetically determined thing and does set an upper bound. Yes. Like you obviously competed at the elite levels. How much do you accredit to just your sheer aptitude and talent? Uh, well, here's your this, biology, this, let's say, chasing the, you know, yeah, running no, past no. the bus or whatever. Very, very interesting because um, as I started out, I would also get bullied by the bigger kids. I mean, you know, rural Maine, I grew up in a fishing village, right? 2,000 people. Everyone 
became a fisherman or, you know, or worked in the tourist trade because there was a bit of a summer uh, tourism. So I got, I got bullied a lot and I was a fairly smart kid. So I placed out of some of the classes and wound up in an all senior PE class as a freshman and just got, you know, mercilessly towel whipped and everything else. <laughs> so along comes spring track and I go out for spring track. And the next thing you know, I win the mile and the two mile. And by the way, sometimes the pole vault, because I was pretty agile. As a freshman. As a freshman. So now I'm the high point man on the track team. So that gave me a lot of cred. So and that, that was probably mostly talent, right? Because you hadn't been training. For um, it was some talent. It was mostly training just because I'd already put those miles in because it, it did not take a lot to win the mile and the two mile in rural Maine in those days. But as I got more and more involved in competing and, and found myself, then I went, I, I went to um, the Phillips Exeter Academy for the last two years of high school. From there, I went to Williams College. And then I was, I was really on this track of competing in cross country and, and track and field, uh, running road races in the summer. And I got faster and faster and, and better and stronger over the, over the years. And I always was interested in the performance aspect of like, how can I improve my performance through either better training methods or with diet and with perhaps vitamin supplementation. So I started really digging into diet and nutrition as a means of improving my performance. And at the time, really the only good research it turns out it wasn't very good, uh, was that a high complex carbohydrate diet was the way to fuel all of those miles. And so I slammed down as many forms of carbohydrate as I could over those years. By the way, I remember, in, just to, to echo that, high school cross country, we would literally do uh, pasta nights before our big meets, yeah. where we'd go like that night before, eat as much pasta as we possibly could, because that was like the way that we would energize ourselves. Every, every major race in the country had a, had a carbo-loading pasta party the exactly. night before the event. Exactly. Yeah. No, that was sort of the conventional wisdom was you had to consume all these carbohydrates and, and put these miles in and stay away from fats. Fats are bad. And over the years, I got better and, and faster and stronger and put the miles in. But I noticed that I was my- By health. the way, just, just for reference for people, sorry to keep interrupting, but you know, I was training as a pretty elite high school runner and running 50 miles a week, which was considered quite in the upper bound. Yeah. So you at your like peak training, you were doing twice that, which is sort of insane. Mileage. Well, I mean, that was in those days, you have to understand, this was the late 70s, early 80s. Bill Rogers was doing 138 miles a week. And I'm like, God, I- I got to at least do that. But you were slacking. I was slacking at 120, (laughs) trying to keep up at 120, which is probably my max. So I averaged about 100 miles a week for a seven-year period. So yeah, I put the miles in, uh, but I was getting, starting to get injured a lot. Um, I had itises. I had tendonitis in my hips. I had arthritis in my feet. I had severe irritable bowel syndrome, which I thought was a result of my sort of stress-based type A lifestyle. Uh, it turns out it wasn't. I had GERD, you know, gastroesophageal reflux disease, had bad acne. I mean, I was just like falling apart. And and here I was, theoretically, the picture of health, like the iconic cardio-based runner, which was, again, the symbolic of fitness and health in this country in those, in those days. I was on the cover of Runner's World magazine three times, but I was kind of dying on the inside. I mean, it got worse and worse over the several years of my training to the point that I, I retired and I just said, this isn't worth the effort. And, I, and partly retired out of, from running because I just couldn't put the miles in anymore. My arthritis was so bad. My tendonitis was so bad. I couldn't, I, there was a point at which I couldn't train more than 20 or 30 miles a week. So I retired and I started looking at what had gone wrong. By then, I had a degree in biology. I'd been pre-med at Williams College. I had a very strong fascination for evolutionary biology. I wanted to find out what it was about the human species and the DNA that we have that would allow me to be so performance-based and, and excel at such you know, a pursuit as running, but then not show the results of it linearly with my health. So that was really what started my, my path toward doing research and writing books on, you know, what it is about, about humans that allows us to benefit by building muscle and burning fat and improving our immune system when we do the right things. And what is it, what are the wrong things that cause us to add on fat, lose muscle, have a decreased immune system, be inflamed all the time and have pain all the time. And I started to uncover a lot of really, really cool things that worked for me. And then I thought, well, if these work for me, maybe there's a lot of other people out there for whom these 
these, these strategies will work. So that's what started Mark's Daily Apple, which was my blog that I started in 2006. I really, I just wanted a, a place to espouse my beliefs and my views as, as contrarian as they seemed at the time. And to your point, you just made, I mean, they're not so contrarian now, right? But at the time it was like, wow, this is like, what do you mean we should not be eating so many carbohydrates? And what do you mean we should actually eat more fat not less fat. And what do you mean? Exercise is not a great way to lose weight. So all of these, what I call these hidden genetic switches that we all have, that became one of my life's missions was to un, to discover these hidden genetic switches and then share that information with my friends and with my readers and with my followers. And if they chose to act on the, on, on that information, great. And if they didn't, fine. I'm, and I'm fine. Whatever, you know, everybody's got their own lifestyle, their own their own thing. But for me, Thriving was really extracting the greatest amount of contentment, pleasure, joy, enlightenment out of every possible moment in life. And up until the time I retired from competing, I was not extracting a great amount of enjoyment or pleasure. It was struggling and suffering. I mean, you know, as having been an endurance athlete, it's never fun. There, it's, it's at best neutral. But it's never fun. I mean, all it's you're fun doing- fun when you finish the race. That's it. But that's like, it's, you know, when you stop beating your head with a hammer, it, it guess it's fun. Played the joke. You know, the guy comes into the room, one beating his head against the wall. Why are you doing that? Because it feels so good when I stop. Absolutely. And, and that was the real uh, moment of enlightenment for me when I realized that most of my life I'd been managing discomfort. So my training was about managing discomfort. How deep a hole can I dig for myself in this workout and be able to do it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day? And then the racing is even worse. You'd line up at the, at, the, at the starting line and there's 20 guys there who are equally as genetically gifted, equally as talented, have worked just as hard, want it just as bad that day. But it really that day, the race comes down to who is willing to manage their discomfort to such a degree that they drag everyone into this yeah, pain dark pain, pain hole with them. Then the race is always one of attrition. It's who, it's who drops off the back. I mean, I remember, again, this is high school, so much lower level than where you ultimately competed. But, you know, we'd have guys passing out at the end of the race, you know, throwing up at the end of the race. Yeah. I mean, it was like literally bodies convulsing because they put themselves to that threshold. Yeah, meanwhile, the the the, uh, the hockey players, the football players, the basketball players, they're all laughing and joking and having a great time. I mean, they might've lost the game, but they had fun. Well, it's really it's interesting to think it. about it from an evolutionary standpoint, right? Because humans are social creatures, right? And most of the activities, if you think of hunting, you're working together, you're going after a goal. It's, you know, it's dynamic and moving versus running. You're like, running in a line, pushing yourself yeah. basically to that proverbial red line. Yeah. It's not an evolutionarily- uh, Well, you know. it's, it's, it's almost contrary. People would say to me, well, that is kind of primal, Mark, that you ran every day. Well, no, our ancestors would choose not to run every day. It's a waste of energy to just- yeah. They run, run when they need no to, sprint when they need bingo. to, stop and- Exactly. It was about, and by the way, needing to was a prime motivator because if you're starving to death, you need to. I want to, so I want to double click on the primal like hypothesis because as I mentioned at the beginning and you just alluded to, it's become a lot more accepted today. But there's this interesting track through like, I feel like starting all the way back with Darwin and evolution of like, people don't want to apply evolutionary thinking to humans. Right. It's like when we look at any other biological system, you yeah. look and you say, like, all right, what was the environment of evolutionary adaptation? That's what that animal should basically have in order to thrive. And yet, you know, here we are 150 years after, uh, you know, Darwin was, was talking about this stuff. And still, like at the time, like you were saying in the 80s and 90s, the conventional wisdom was eat complex carbs. And like no perspective that was really evolutionarily informed on human exercise, right. sleep, diet, et cetera. So just for the listeners, like, can you distill down, like, what is the insight on, on primal living? And also, like I said, can you extend it? Cause it's diet, but it's also, it's exercise, sure. it's sleep, it's all of it. So the basic premise is we are today sitting here, the result of millions of years of evolution, most of which took place in a situation where there was scarcity, there was no food, where there was harsh conditions. There were, you know, it was the, the ground was always cold at night and the, you know, it was always too hot in the daytime or there were periods of uh, famine and uh, everything was difficult. And the average lifespan, half of people died at birth or mothers, you know, died in childbirth. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a very tough situation. And so those of our ancestors who survived, survived 
in this crucible of all of these different challenges to give us today this recipe, this genetic recipe, this DNA set that expects certain inputs, expects us to eat a certain way, expects us to move the ways in which we moved all throughout human history, expects us to go to bed when the sun goes down and sleep all night and wake when the sun comes up, does not anticipate that we're going to stay up under blue light partying until 2 a.m. and then waking up to an alarm clock. So it has, the body has all these expectations. Expects us to have variability in temperature, right? Exposure to the elements. All of this, a great example, does not expect the body to be at (laughs) 68.5 degrees ambient air temperature all day long. The body actually expects us to walk barefoot all the time. We haven't, we've only been shod for like a thousand years of those two and a half million years of human history. So the Primal Blueprint, my original book, basically looked at, okay, what is it about our constitution? What is it about our genetic makeup that expects us to do certain things? And how have we thwarted those expectations? Our, in other words, our, our, our genes want us to be strong and lean and fit and happy and healthy and productive and, and live certainly long enough to pass the genetic material as a healthy complement of the genetic material along to the next generation. And yet we've gotten in the way with, you know, all of these developments, these creature comforts. Lucky for us, I guess, our brains increased in such a way that we could invent tools and strategies to be more comfortable. And in becoming more comfortable, we've become more soft. And in becoming more soft, we become uh, susceptible to the diseases of lifestyle, you know, heart disease and cancer, diabetes, autoimmune diseases, all of these things are... When there's no stress, the body loses its resiliency. You talk a lot about flexibility, metabolic flexibility. And if you're eating, you know, carbohydrates every two hours, every waking hour of your day, and you're, like you said, sitting at 68 degrees and only moving in very, like, constrained ways... The body says, I don't need to do anything. I don't need to get stronger. I don't need to burn off my precious stored body fat. This is great. I'll just, you know, if if this organism is going to keep eating every two hours, the cells go, hey, this, I'll expect I'll expect fresh supplies of glucose every couple of hours. So the primal blueprint was a list of 10 sort of laws, the immutable laws of, of being human, you know, move around a lot at a low level of activity. No, it doesn't mean going out and running marathons and counting calories. It means just moving around, putting your body through ranges of motion and planes of activity. Lift heavy things once in a while. No, don't go to the gym every day for two hours and bodybuild if that's not your thing. But yeah, twice a week, lift some heavy things and you'll benefit from it. The body expects that. Sprint once in a while. If you look back on human history, our ancestors were always having to sprint for their lives whether it was to get away from something that was going to kill you or towards something that you were going to have, that you were going to eat. So sprint once in a while, get plenty of sleep, you know, eat lots of plants and animals. I mean, it's basic stuff. Don't eat processed foods. Don't eat crap. But what I loved about it, I mean, I remember reading the Primal Blueprint and then getting onto Mark's Daily Apple. And it's like that simple insight can just, it's a paradigm shift, right? And everything can sort of follow from it. Once you're looking through that evolutionary lens, it's like, all right, yeah, how, you know, how much is this going to map to what my body evolved and therefore is designed? And do? that was the whole point was that it's a template. So it's not a it's dogmatic a list of things as much as it's a template of behaviors that I describe that allow a lot of leeway within them. What does it mean to eat lots of plants and animals? I guess it means you can eat a lot of plants if you're vegan or vegetarian, a lot of animals if you're a carnivore. It's a, it's a framework. And it's a fr- I, yeah. I think the other the other thing that, and this is a lot of researchers and folks have talked about this, but like the range of our environment, environment of evolution adaptation was also quite wide. And you can see healthy native populations in different temperatures with different types of diets, different right. macro breakdown, but the, there's these common threads or common Yeah, threads. so a great, that's a great question. The answer to which is, yes, we all build muscle the same way. We all burn fat the same way. We all boost our immune system the same way. It's just the degree to which we do it that varies individually among us, largely based on our parents' contribution to our DNA, which in turn historically reverts back to populations that never really moved much. So if you have a Northern European heritage and you're for 50 generations, your parents and your ancestors never left 
Northern Europe, you have a certain way of utilizing nutrients that may differ from a Polynesian, yeah. uh, which doesn't well, mean- I, I, This has been something really impactful in my own life. I mean, we have on my mother's side of the family, which is uh, Mexican-American, including indigenous Mexican, there is a lot of diabetes. And some of that goes back to, you know, agriculture was not introduced as early a, a stage uh, for that, that part of our family as it would have been for my father's side of the family, which was Northern European. And you're seeing more diabetes now because of the processed maize, the yeah. Cr- processed Well, yeah, corn. the current American diet can get yeah. diabetes to, yeah, yeah. Any human. <laughs> any, to any human. But you see it now in Asian communities. I mean, Dr. Ron Sinha, I published one of his books, The South Asian Solution, and it was because 300 million diagnosed Indian uh, population have diabetes. Diabetes. And it's from rice and, you know, just, yeah. and not moving and crappy seed oils. So I can geek out on this stuff for a long time, and I, I encourage any listener who's not deeply exposed to this, it is a paradigm shift, and Mark's Daily Apple remains, 15 years later, the best resource. So you know, check it out if you're interested in, in diving deeper. I want to talk next about like how your thinking has evolved over the years. So it's amazing to me when I look back at the Primal Blueprint, like 15 years ago, you pretty much got it right. Yeah. But yet you have shifted your thinking and incorporated new things, particularly keto, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's very interesting. Like there's people that like plant their flag in the keto diet, say I'm like 100% keto. You've taken a different tact, which is this is a tool in my toolkit to build metabolic flexibility. So, you know, talk about how your thinking has shifted and I double click on that idea of metabolic flexibility because I think sure. that's also a huge thing. Sure. Yeah. So originally it just it made sense that we would eat more like our ancestor did. And, and that meant like, for instance, at the base of my food pyramid for the longest time, I had a big ass salad, you know, like, like that was the mainstay of my every day was a lot of, uh, crunchy, leafy vegetables and some protein. Which by the way, we'll segue to primal kitchen here. Yeah. 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 You know, my own life was dramatically shifted when I was 47. I still hadn't dealt with my irritable bowel syndrome. So Here I am from the age of 14 to 47. Uh, My whole life is dictated by where the nearest bathroom is. And it was kind of a horrible way to live, trying to catalog what city I'm in and where do I know that there's open bathrooms in this city near me. And that was even on a paleo diet. No, that was not on a paleo diet. That was pre-paleo. This is pre-paleo. That was 22 years ago. But it was what begat the primal blueprint. In it, I had already decided that I didn't need that many carbohydrates. So I was cutting back on carbs in general, but mostly cutting back on crappy carbs, like, you know, the, the processed carbs and the, all the, the breads and the pastas and things that I, I knew I probably shouldn't be eating so much of, but I was still, you know, in some cereals and things like that. I had already begun to recognize the benefit of healthy fat. So I was incorporating more saturated fat into my diet, more monounsaturated fats, and recognizing that trans fats were horrible and I could keep, I could get rid of those. But I still had this gut issue that plagued me. And I still had, like, I had arthritis in my fingers so bad at 47 that I couldn't play golf because I couldn't hold a golf club. Or if you and I just met for the first time and you shook my hand, I would, I would cringe at the thought of you trying to out-bro squeeze me, you know, on a handshake. Wow. So my wife— And that wasn't running-related if it was— No, not hands. at all. This, is all. this was all diet-related. So my wife said, look, Mark, you're doing all this research, and you're actually writing about grains and how antithetical they are to health. And you're writing about gluten, and you're writing about all of the tightly wound proteins and the zine and the— phytic acid and all of the sort of anti-nutrients and, and things and grains. Why don't you just stop eating grains for a month and see what happens? And so it was my wife's idea. And I, and I did, and I stopped and it transformed my life. It changed my life. My arthritis went away. Uh, the irritable bowel syndrome went away. That was again, huge. The GERD went away. I had all of these things that had I, I had sort of ascribed or chalked up to, well, I'm 47, I'm getting up there. This is what comes with aging. I'll still be fit. I'll still do my activities, but I'll, I'll struggle through the, you know, the joint pain went away. Wow. So it was so eye-opening to me. That's when I really said, look, I have to tell the world about that. And so that was, that, that was what sort of transformed me into the pure paleo. I actually read Lauren Cordain's early work and said, okay, Cordain's got He's got the right idea. Grains are really antithetical to health, not just for people who have, you know, test positive for gluten sensitivity, but for anybody who you may not even test positive. You may take a food test, and, and but still it's worth 
trying to give it up for a while. So that so, was- I know if you got the 80-20 though there, why didn't you just call it a day? Like why evolve towards- Yeah, so I got such and- great results over the next 10 years with just eating primally, which meant also three meals a day. You know, I was eating breakfast, eggs for breakfast, big ass salad for lunch, steak and veggies, and maybe a sweet potato for, for dinner. But I've spent my life chasing performance. So I'm like, okay, I'm really fit now and I'm pain-free and I'm moving well. What else is there? What can I do now? And so I started looking into keto. And that's really what got me reading, you know, Finney and Volick uh, and understanding a little bit more about the assumptions that I'd had about the necessity of glycogen in muscles and glucose. And this was, was kind of, this was like before keto was a thing. Oh, yeah. You yeah. also yeah, basically yeah. ended up being the pioneer. Yeah, yeah. You know, this, is, this is, yeah, this is... Now, all of, a, all of a sudden, still a long time ago, I experimented with keto and keto was basically, you know, you cut out all carbs, try to keep the fats healthy, but don't pay attention to calories, just pay attention to hunger. I thought, well, this is great and I can do this. And I was getting great results. My body fat, which was already low, you know, was, was coming down even more. I was I probably to the extent that I could judge or gauge the fact that I was thinking clear. I was thinking clear. And all of these kind of came together, and I thought, this is, this is very cool, but this is not sustainable for me. So what is it about diets, and what is it that we're really looking for that maybe we're missing because everyone's going, you know, you pick a way of eating. You, I'm going to be vegan. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be a fruitarian. I'm going to be a lacto-ovo-vegetarian. I'm going to be a, you know, a carnivore. I'm going to eat paleoish or whatever. What is it that we're really chasing? And, it, and at the end of the day... None of those diets are horrible if you do them right. And some are really good if you do them right, but some are unsustainable if you do them right. What, what is it we're really chase, chasing? We're chasing what I call metabolic flexibility. So metabolic flexibility, which I describe rather overly simply as the body's ability to extract energy from whatever substrate happens to be available at the time. So the counter to metabolic flexibility is being a sugar burner. So you, you, you talked about the body expecting to be fed every two hours. Well, most people are sugar burners. They have never built the metabolic machinery to burn fat efficiently. And this is also a very evolutionarily informed concept, right? Yes. Because yeah. in an environment of evolutionary adaptation, you have to be flexible. The timing, the source of the calories is going to be different on any every, given day. Every day. So you never know with the, if, whether the meal you're eating now is going to be the last meal for, or there's going to be another one around the corner. And so the human body evolved with this flexibility to be able to tap into energy stores that we carry around with us. So, so consider this in, in the evolutionary context. We are designed, we are wired to overeat. And so as, as proto-humans going back 50,000 years, a million years, two million years, the brain is wired to come across a, a stash of food, a store of food, and overeat. And the reason for that is that the body has over time evolved these mechanisms to take this excess energy and convert it into fuel that you conveniently carry around with you over the center of gravity. It's on the waist, on the butt, on the thighs, on the hips. It's, it's a very elegant system, even for evolution, which tends to be quite in, inelegant most times. The fact that we could convert excess calories into fuel, carry them around with us, and then be able to tap into the fuel stores when there's so no... You're, you're saying the love handles are adaptive. It's actually... They're a, totally yeah. adaptive. It's, <laughs> it's it, because if, you know, we're bipedal, we're stand upright. So we don't carry the fuel around on our on our shoulders because we would fall over. If we no, were we're not a around. camel. We're not going to have a hump, yeah. right? And we don't have four <laughs> legs. And we don't have four legs. So with, with two yeah. legs... Being, we, it has to be centered over the center of gravity. It's just, it's such a perfect system. Well, I think most people would disagree. With no, but it's a no, perfect no, 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 system. No, but, but here's but the evolutionarily thing: speaking. no, evolutionary. It's 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 incredibly efficient. <laughs> but what happened was over time, with the access to unlimited amounts of food all the time, we maintain this ability to convert excess calories into into body fat, into fuel, and carry it around with us. But we lost the ability the necessity to um, tap into those fat stores and burn them and combust them as fuel. So what I do with talking about metabolic flexibility is I say, well, if you could find a way that you could access the fat that's stored on your body or the fat that's on your plate of food or the glycogen in your muscles or the glucose in your bloodstream or the carbohydrate in your plate of food or the ketones that your liver makes, I mean, if the body is able to be efficiently extracting energy from any of those substrates at any one time, who cares what diet you're, you know, what way of eating you've chosen? 
Now, it just happened at the time that keto was probably the best way to do that. It was probably the most, not best, the most convenient, most assuredly best use of your time. Like if you could invest three, three to six weeks in a keto strategy, you could just be keto for those three to six weeks, up, upregulate, reset your metabolism. In fact, I have a book called The Keto Reset Diet. And then be so good at, at this metabolic flexibility that you could go back to eating a little bit of carbs. Not a lot of carbs. But the the alternative, by the way, is yeah. you go directly to consuming your own body's fat, right? By yeah. fasting, which anyone that's done that who isn't fat adapted already knows it's just incredibly painful. Well, well here's why it's so painful if you're not fat adapted, because if your brain is still expecting you to be providing glucose, if you haven't built the metabolic machinery to burn fat in your muscles or the metabolic machinery to burn ketones efficiently in the brain, and the brain hasn't gotten used to that, the brain, if you starve yourself, the brain just goes, where's my glucose, dude? And, and if you say, well, I'm not going to eat, I'm going to willpower my way through this and I'm not going to eat, I'm going to burn off my body fat... Guess what? The body goes, well, uh, you know, the brain goes, eh, I don't think so. We're going to, I'm going to send some, uh, some signals down to the adrenals. We're going to secrete some cortisol. The cortisol is going to go to your muscles and it's going to melt your muscle tissue down. And you're going to send a couple of the uh, amino acids to the liver to become glucose. So Mr. Brain can be happy again. And it's this negative feedback cycle that, t- that then you tear down more Yeah, it's more not good for your tissue. body composition and it's, it feels it, it, like crap. And right? you feel like crap and you still aren't burning any fat because you haven't built the machinery. So you have to sort of work the system backwards and go, well, how do I build that metabolic machinery? Well, f- the best way to do it is to eat protein and fat and go longer periods of time without eating and train your body to go, okay, there's not going to be any glucose. So knowing that, I'm going to I'm going to be burning ketones. The brain loves ketones. Actually likes it better than than glucose. The brain will burn ketones and stay very happy and then the muscles will become more and more adapted to burning fat for locomotion to get you around uh, moving throughout the day. And you can get so good at this that you can get 96% of your energy requirements doing six and a half minute miles from fat when you become truly metabolically uh, efficient and metabolically flexible. Yeah, it was the, the most shocking thing for me the first time I tried keto was I had done some fasting before and it had always been so hard. And like I always attributed it to like, well, I'm a skinny guy, like I don't have the fat stores, it's just like, you know, it, I need I need calories. And after doing keto, like I noticed I just like didn't have as much appetite. So I was like, all right, I'll eat a little bit later and a little later. And all of a sudden I was doing 24 hour fasts basically trivially. Yes. Once I had done uh, once I was fat adapted. So for any of you guys out there that are struggling with fasting, I will say keto as an entry point. Like if you're able to get to a place where you can do keto even for a few days before a longer fast, it's a game changer. Yeah, and the way we we coached it in the keto reset diet was don't pay attention to calories and don't let yourself ever get hungry. As long as you're just eating fat and protein and not carbohydrate, the body will get the message. And you naturally get less hungry, which is And you naturally get less hungry, which is fine. But do not let yourself get hungry. That's where people go off the rails. So they'll try to do keto and fasting at the same time. If, the, if you know, cold turkey or starting yeah. from no, scratch. No, the process of getting fat adapted, doing it with keto is a lot easier. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you yeah. pointed out, keto is not an easy, for most people, it's not an easy long-term lifestyle. Yet for most people, for short-term, it actually is certainly a lot easier than fasting. Yeah. And it's pretty doable, right? It's no, just, no. And when I, even when I said that, it's like, I just, I like food too much. People, exactly. People yeah. go, you know, Mark, you're so, you know, you're, you're so stoic about this whole thing and you must, you must have such discipline. I'm like, no, I don't have that much discipline at all. I actually like to eat a lot of food. So I've crafted a, a, a lifestyle strategy around metabolic flexibility that allows me to eat salads when I want to, or have a piece of bread once in a while, or have uh, some fruit and not think anything of it, certainly not feel guilty that I've, I've, I've kicked myself out of keto. Yeah. So I really want to, I want to unpack that, this idea, because it's been something that, you know, you haven't written a book about it, but I feel like it's really core to your philosophy. And that is not denying yourself, right. To and like engaging in fun, yeah. uh, indulging in pleasure uh, of all types, right. Including food. Yeah. And even, you know, whether it's your, the way you work out, you know, you're playing ultimate Frisbee, you're not going into the, into the weight room, you're enjoying that glass of wine at night. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, back to our theme of thriving, it's like, I think a lot of people think about being physically healthy, sort of having denied themselves the things that they emotionally or right. socially love. 
So talk about the role of fun in your in your life and how you apply it. Well, again, going back to the comment, the the sort of aha moment I had after retiring from from competition in endurance activities, which was it was never fun. I thought, well, I'm I'm going to make my life about enjoyment and fun. And so with regard to diet, the line I use is I never put a a bite of food in my mouth that I don't think I'm going to love. You made me a great kale salad with lemon dressing on it, and I don't like kale. I'm, I don't care how good kale is for me. I'm not going to have it, right? So I want everything I eat to taste great. I know enough when to stop, so that's an easy part of it. I don't have to, you know, gorge myself on on stuff. In terms of my working out, um, I want to go back. I, I never answered your question about VO2 max. So I had my um, genetic composition done. And it came back that I was um, 57% endurance athlete, 43% strength athlete. So that's pretty skewed towards strength for somebody who was a pretty good endurance athlete, right? Like if I was a really world-class endurance athlete, I would have been more like 80, 85. More heavily, huh? And my VO2 max at my peak was 67.5, not a very high VO2 max. So I am the product of massively hard work of just digging <laughs> pain threshold pain threshold yeah. really and and uh, that was one of my strong points to my detriment because now I have a my my heart is kind of messed up because of all of the training I did for 30 years I did I overtrained I did you know I, I ran my heart up to max probably three to four times a week for 30 years right and when I mean max I don't mean just for 30 seconds I mean sometimes for like eight minutes you know, or whatever. Anyway, so I, I backtracked. I said, well, what are the, you know, how, how do I want to stay active, stay mobile, enjoy life and have fun? And so I picked some activities that for me are fun, but are still demanding. Like I like, I love stand up paddling. And so I go, and I don't like to go with anyone else. I like to go alone because I'm, I'm out with the manatees in Miami or with the dolphins in, in, in Malibu. I pick a pace, I go, I'm, I'm in a zone, it's meditative for me. It's interesting, it's so different from running, because running I was always sort of out of breath, pushing the envelope. It's a different effort level in paddling. It's a big, full-body workout, but you're never really out of breath if you do it right. I love uh, fat biking on the beach, so I ride a fat bike, fat tire bike on, on the sand. In, in the sand. In the yeah. sand. Yeah, so... It t- I had Thomas DeLauer out with me a, a couple of weeks ago. Do you know Thomas? Yeah, I know yeah, Thomas yeah, yeah. really well. Yeah. So he was out with me and he's like, dude, this is awesome. And it was like, so we had a great time. And Greenfield's, Ben Greenfield's joining me in a couple, couple of weeks. So that's, you know, that's one of my fun pursuits. And then this week I'm in town. I, I, I was in Malibu and I played a Sunday Frisbee game and I played a Thanksgiving Day Ultimate Frisbee game. And I get my son's a great uh, Ultimate player. So we get a chance to be on the same team and, and play. So, all, you know, I do spend time in the gym, but, but it, it's less and less time. Now it's all, you know, I'm not setting any records anymore at, at my age. So I'm just like kind of doing the work just to, just to sort of tune myself up so that I don't get hurt when I'm playing. I, mean, I think it's really interesting too. You know, you started Primal Kitchen in your fifties. You sold it in your sixties. I and- started Primal Kitchen in my sixties. Oh, okay. and sold it in my late sixties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. So, yeah. and this is like a big, successful company that you built yeah. very quickly. And I was reflecting back on kind of how that started, and it really came down to like your wanting pleasurable food, yeah. right? That was also healthy. Can you just talk about this? Sure, like- sure. So, you know, as I recognize the importance of food. Uh, through my writings, through Mark's Daily Apple and through the books that I've written. And I've written seven cookbooks. I recognized early on that when you get rid of the crap in your diet, when you get rid of the processed foods in the center aisle, when you get rid of the industrial seed oils and the added sugar and the colors and the additives and the pies and the cakes and the candies and the cookies, and the stuff, you know, you come down to a pretty short list of things that you can actually eat. You know, meat, fish, fowl, eggs, nuts, seeds, vegetables, some fruit and some tubers. And that could be daunting for somebody who doesn't, you know, who, who, who's a foodie who likes to eat food. So what really makes a difference is what you put on the food. It's the sauces, the dressings, the toppings, the methods of preparation, the herbs and spices that you use that all of a sudden now re-inject some uh, excitement into this short list of food and allow for millions of, of different combinations, right? So flavor and variety. Flavor and also. Now, I recognize over the years, like, like I always had a, uh, a, a Friday 
recipe, how to make your own mayonnaise, how to make your own ketchup, how to, because I didn't trust anything in the stores, how to make your own salad dressing for sure, because none of the store-bought salad dressing was, was worthy of my consideration, especially as I started to get deep, deeply into the, uh, how uh, negatively the industrial seed oils, corn oil, canola, um, soybean oil affect our health. I would look at the store shelves and there was nothing that I could buy to put on my salad. And I recognized that, oh, by the way, my, the second book I wrote was called Healthy Sauces, Dressings, and Toppings. And because of the success of the Primal Blueprint, which sold, I don't know, 50,000 copies the first month or something like that, which is, you know, for a self-published book, it was pretty good. I printed like 40,000 copies. I think we sold like 1,300 copies of this book. It became clear to me that no one wants to make their own sauces, <laughs> dressings, and toppings. So, so 15 years later. So later, so now we cut to, the, that book or, came out in probably 2011. 10 years later, yeah. No, it came out in 2011. And then 2014, 13, 14, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a okay. company that makes really better for you sauces, dressings, and toppings, things that you put on food. You know, in, in the old paradigm, you would say, well, mayonnaise tastes great, but... God, everybody knows it's bad for you, so use it sparingly. Or don't put much salad dressing on your on your salad because you know it's going to ruin those wonderful vegetables that you put on. And I'm like, dude, I like I'm putting this on because I want to. I want the flavor. I want to taste all of these different things. Uh, so how can I make these condiments and these dressings with healthful oils and and super nutrients, super ingredients if we can, superfoods if we can find them that people will, in alignment with my own thought process, go, yeah, I, I really would like something that I could put on a burger that I don't have to feel guilty about eating. And, you know, we worked on, we worked on some salad dressings, we worked on some ketchup, we worked on some barbecue sauces, but the first thing that we were able to commercialize was mayonnaise. And I wasn't even a big mayonnaise guy, but I, I recognized that mayonnaise was kind of the holy grail of paleo condiments because for the prior 10 years since the advent of paleo primal keto people there was no mayonnaise so it, because it was so horrible the stuff that you could buy in the stores so people stopped eating chicken salad they stopped eating tuna salad they stopped eating coleslaw they stopped eating potato salad egg salad all these yeah, you things took, you took the canola oil out of it yeah. replaced it with avocado oil and all of a sudden you have like all of a sudden a, it just yeah. Perfect paleo. You know, and, and I remember you and I discussed early on, like one of our first promos was with Thrive Market. And I go to my manufacturer, I'm like, uh, so what's the smallest run of this we can do? Because, you know, I don't know how long this is going to last or whether it's going to sell. And, and my manufacturer said, well, we can do 12,000 jars. And I, I literally rolled my eyes like, Jesus, 12,000, that's a lot of mayonnaise, don't you think? And, you know, as you recall, it was gone within two weeks. I mean, we used to have like huge sections of our warehouse that were just yeah. filled with Primal Kitchen Mayo because yeah. it sold so well. Yeah. Because, I mean, at the time there was no product. There was nothing. Now like there's it. all these copycats, but there was nothing like it at you the know, time. You know, and I, people ask me how I feel about that. And, you know, I, it's like, be careful what you wish for. My mission statement was to change the way the world eats, right? Part of that was done through my blog, Mark's Daily Apple. Part of it was done through my books. Much of it was done through my creating products. Uh, that people would, who otherwise would not be eating healthy, would sort of use as a transition. Oh, this looks interesting. What is it about this product that's so healthy? Oh, wow. Uh, let me look into this way of eating. And, and, and people's lives have been transformed from that side, from the, from the commerce side of buying our products and then, and then sort of backing into a primal or a paleo way of eating. Totally. You know, and insofar as you created imitators, it's like yeah. You know, so so that's, that that also changed the industry. No, that right? raised the bar for that's other. leverage. That's where that was. Sorry, you got to my point. Thank you. Uh, that was the leverage I was talking about. Like like, careful what you wish for. Change the way the world eats. If if a hundred companies change how they're making products to feed the world, then and that changes how the world eats. Then then uh, then my mission has been successful. Yeah, and then a, I mean a Fortune 500 business like Kraft Heinz can come and say, hey, we want some of this. Yeah. And you're all of a sudden able to change how they think about CPG internally. That's and that's been massive. Yeah. Pretty incredible. Yeah. So the reason I liked, I asked that question about the genesis of Primal Kitchen is one, I think it does tie to that philosophy of fun that like, you know, you started a company so that you could have the pleasure yeah. in food that right. you weren't able to get from store-bought dressings and condiments. But the other reason is I think it's this like through line in your career, which I find amazing of, you know, you didn't have a master plan of like, I'm going to build a 
hundred million dollar business, or I'm going to I didn't to go, intend to become the, Mal- yeah. the the Mayo King of Malibu. No, well, yeah, or or for that matter, <laughs> yeah. to become a multi-time New York Times best-selling author, or have this blog that would become you know the kind of pinnacle of primal living. But it was sort of each step. It was like, hey, this is something I want. It doesn't exist. I'm going to go create it, and all of a sudden the snowball gets rolling. And it just as an, as an entrepreneur, I find that so like resonance as just the way entrepreneurship really works, right? Well, that's not, how it worked for you and Gunnar. Totally. Yeah. You like it's one, one step in front yeah. of the other and all of a sudden, th- you know, great things can happen. Shifting gears to a totally different topic. You've alluded to this a couple of times, but before we got on for the interview, I asked, you're, you're 66, right? You're like, no, I'm 69. And actually until earlier today, I thought you were in your early 60s. So 69 is a time when a lot of people are slowing down. You know, it's just like, I think about my parents and their generation you were starting businesses in your 60s. Uh, you know, you've said, I think pretty recently, that your body composition is still similar to what it was in your 50s and 40s and young yeah. 30s. Staying lean, active, cognitively sharp, like that's what everyone wants as they age. We've gone through what think a lot of what maybe is your secret, but is there anything else that you attribute that ability to stay young and have that health span be so good? Well, I would say diet is huge, right? Diet is a, is a major part of that. Staying active, absolutely huge. I think, you know, when you talk about longevity, you talk about the ability to move around the world. If you like, why do I want to live to 95 if I can't go visit places and go travel and walk around and hang out with with friends? And then the cognitive side of that, you know, why would I want to live that long if I can't remember great memories or if I, you know, if I can't uh, participate in, in spirited conversations and witty repartee, right? So, but I also hang around with young people. And that is... I mean, I don't know what they think about me, you know, this old fart hanging around them, but I hang around young people and I try to adopt the latest lexicon, the latest jargon of the young people and participate in conversations and, and play. I mean, the, the, the kids I play ultimate with, they're 20 somethings, but there are 30 somethings and there's a couple of, you know, 50 and 60 somethings in that game, but it's a, it's a, it's a young person's game, Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Like people say you are who you're around and, yeah. you know, being with younger people that have that vibrancy and energy probably, you know, drive some of that as yeah. well. I'm really curious. And, and I think I know at least one answer you're going to get to this, but like you seem to have achieved a lot young, but then also continued to achieve into your, into your sixties now. Are you done or what's next? Well, I sold uh, primal kitchen in 2019 and I tried to be retired and it, it didn't work. <laughs> so so uh, I started a new company with my son. It's a minimalist footwear company. It's called Paluva. We launch uh, the first quarter of 2023. Very excited about it. I think it's going to revolutionize the way the world walks. So, and By the way, you're wearing a pair of them in here. Yes. And when you walked in today, I stood with you for 10 minutes. Didn't know. I was like, you were like, you're dressed very fashionably. Yeah, yeah. And you're, these shoes have five fingers. Yeah. Every pair of shoes I've ever seen with five fingers looks quite strange. Yeah. These look like they're like stylish shoes that you'd wear Thank like you. got to a, you we, know. We think so. That was, that was uh, you know, the intention was to bring the concept of a uh, toe splay, a and wide like fa- toe splay. Fashion forward. Fashion forward, right, exactly. So we're, um, I'm anxious to see what, what the Thrive Market members are going to uh well, Think we, about these. You're yeah. going to start the footwear category. <laughs> okay, right. that's right. Let's do uh, it. I don't know, I don't know how we'll manage the sizing. We've started categories before, Nick. That's true. That is true. <laughs> All right, so we're getting to the end of the interview. One thing I like to end on is oh, just- Oh, I just have to, the name of the company is Paluva. Paluva. P-E-L-U-V-A. So go to paluva.com. And is it, it'll be primarily D2C then? Same yes, thing. yes. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Q1 2023, paluva.com. I like to give the listeners some really tangible takeaways- and so I want to do a rapid fire thing. Just give me your, like, get, and let them kind of get into your world. I'm going to say a few different top fill in the blank. Okay. And you tell me what would be at the top of your list. So uh, first one is top animal-based food for you. Oh, lamb chops. Lamb chops. That's an interesting one. Lamb chops are controversial. I'll tell you that in my home. <laughs> my wife will not do lamb chops. Uh, top non-animal-based food. Non-animal-based food. I mean, you you got me there because I, mean, uh, I was going to eat cheese. Cheese is animal based. Uh, as I go down my list, they're all there's animals there somewhere. Um, no part of you is vegan. I no, can no, tell cher- that. Uh, uh, tart cherries. Tart cherries, good supplements. Collagen, 
And vitamin D. Okay. Top exercise for cardio. Lifting weights. <laughs> okay. No, no all, everything you do is cardio. So, so just let's let's put a little bit of a yeah. Uh, you mix it. Talk about not that. like you. Yeah. Yeah. So so uh, when you go to the gym and you lift weights, especially if you're doing high intensity work, it's cardio. Your heart's your heart's, your heart's beating. beating. I mean, I would say stand up paddling is my top cardio exercise, but but in general, if, add, you know, as a as advice for anyone, every time you go to the gym, it's cardio. So, and then top for strength. And this one, like in, yeah, in yeah, your yeah. 60s, still maintaining yeah, a yeah. strong lean physique. How do you do that? Hex bar deadlift. Deadlift. Okay. Hex bar Hex deadlift. Bar deadlift. Yeah, yeah. That's the one where it's like it the surrounds box you. Yeah, around yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is much safer too. Much safer. Yeah. yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't do a regular deadlift now. It's great. Most important health metric that you track. Most important health metric that I track, how I feel. And I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be really so I'm the anti-quantified self, right? I'm the I'm the anti-biohacking guy. I hate bio, I hate, hate the term biohacking. I don't do wearables. So you're not checking your HRV to no. gauge your energy so, when you so wake the up. Only thing I, the only thing I do wear is I wear a full uh, heart um, EKG system sometimes when I ride because I because of this issue I've had with my heart. I just want to check in once in a while. But that's a full-on EKG. That's like a medical device where I'm actually going out and putting myself through. You're not recommending uh, that. For no, the no, 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 no. It's it, it's an amazing device, and I and I, I you know it's a it's a it's a Frontier X machine. It's a spectacular machine. But that's the only wearable. Like I don't do sleep tracking stuff. I don't do HRV. I can't do HRV because of my Arrhythmias are already built in. Step counting, please. I mean, you know, we, I went to Europe this summer. We walked between mm, six and twelve miles a day every day, and everybody's wearing their Fitbit and their loop and their trackers. And I'm like, I don't care. I felt good. We walked. You know, I know, sort of in my head, how many miles we walked. That's all I care about. I don't care about steps. So I would say the number one metric I use is how do I feel. How did I sleep? I slept pretty well, or I didn't sleep that great. I don't need a device to tell me. Yeah, I just, I love that. And it ties back to that, like having fun and getting pleasure out of life. And I think, you know, you alluded to this earlier, but being like a high intensity, competitive type A person, I think so many of us want to go towards quantify everything, track it all, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the HRV is another example. Uh, People depend on HRV to tell them whether or not to work out or whether or not to work out hard. I'm like, no, do I feel like working out hard? Or not, and if I do and I don't feel good, I'll walk home. You know, I, it's, it's I don't need <laughs> I don't need it to to um, you know annex my health to a device. Yeah, you fly you fly by sight. Yeah, and then last one is top guilty indulgence, or maybe you don't feel guilty about it. But what's an indulgence? You know, I'm you? the one guy uh, that that eats fruitcake. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> I have a sweet tooth too, so I can relate yeah, yeah, yeah. to that. So once a year, I'll have I'll have fruitcake. By you know, not once a year. It gets sent to me during the holidays, and then I'll uh, by several people. So it'll last for a while. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good one. All right. And then we have two things that we like to ask every uh, every person, and that is first, what does thriving mean to you? Uh, thriving means extracting the greatest greatest amount of enjoyment and pleasure and contentment and fulfillment and love out of every every possible moment. And then, in the spirit of constant self improvement, which I know you're obsessed with, what is an area that you want to thrive more? What's one area you're still growing? So um, I've signed up for a breath hold workshop in January, and I'm looking forward to that because I've I've that's always been an issue for me, whether it was swimming or wow. or, or diving. It's just one of those areas I think I need work. That's really interesting. It, it, it feels like breath work is becoming a whole a whole thing right yeah. now. Yeah. So this is holding your breath. So this is like breath hold, like you know, maximum breath hold. Math, maximum breath hold. Yeah. Wow. What's your max right now? Oh, it's probably a minute and thirty or something right, like we'll, that. We'll check in yeah, afterwards. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that's that's it. We've probably gone over, but this was an awesome conversation. So thank you so much, Mark. It's and, my pleasure, Nick. Uh, thank you for everything over the years. Likewise. Awesome. This podcast represents the opinions of the hosts and the guests on the show. The content here is for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions or advice.